Hello and welcome to the first episode of our new Strathclyde Sports Union podcast, Let's Talk Strathsport. I'm Kirsty Vanatine, the Vice President of Sport here at Strath Union, and joining me on the podcast is Nathan, the BAME rep for Strathclyde, and also former Hibs midfielder and current assistant manager at Livingston Football Club, Marvin Bartley. Marvin also has a role with the Scottish Football Association as an equality advisor and is a prominent voice in media both as a pundit and a key figure discussing the issues surrounding racism in sport. October marked Black History Month and we were very grateful to Marvin for joining Strathclyde Sports Union and Strathclyde Students Union today for a Q&A session. We hope that this session can be an open conversation to raise awareness of racism in sport, how to handle it as a student, how we can change the culture and educate students to make change for better and how the landscape has changed with the uprise in social media. We asked students to send questions about Marvin's career and his experiences of racism in sport. So to open up, we asked him to talk about his heroes and inspirations that inspired him to get involved in football. Um, it's a bit cheesy in terms of my heroes. My, my first <laughs> one was, was my mum. You know, I grew up in a single parent home uh, with two older brothers. Obviously my mum sacrificed an awful lot um, to allow me to be kind of the man I am today. Um, my first footballing hero was forced upon me again by my mum. She fancied Ian Wright. So if anybody doesn't know him, you can look, at, look him up after. Uh, I was a Man United fan as a kid and she said, right, if you want a football kit, it has to be Arsenal and it has to have Wright on the back because that was... I respect that. As yeah. Arsenal, I respect. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so I looked up to Ian Wright. He was, he was massive. Um, you know, he went through like, kind of a non-league into professional route as well. Um, obviously, as a young boy, I didn't I didn't know that, but yeah. So he's my sporting hero. Nice. Um, growing up, would you say that you know you were subject to racism, or has this been more prevalent within your career? Um, the first time I I kind of had to deal with it was when I was a young child. Um, at that at the time, I didn't know it was it was racism because I didn't understand the word that the boy used. But I was about seven or eight years of age, and um, you know, one of another school people called me the N word. Um, and I just said it back to him because obviously I'd never heard this word in my life. I didn't understand what it meant and everything else. The teacher heard what had happened, uh, put us both in detention. As you can imagine, around the age of seven or eight, my mum was waiting for me in the playground after school. So she's obviously, all the other kids that came out, she's came into the school, where's Marvin? Uh, teacher explained what had happened and said I was in detention. My mother just came and got me and said, listen, give me my son. He's not sitting in detention for this. Um, even after that, she didn't really explain to me what the word meant, but she just said it was a really bad word. And if I was ever to hear it, then I'd tell a teacher um, or tell an adult, but I was never ever to say the word. It's only when I got older that, you know, I realised what the word actually meant. And I actually spoke to the to the child, because we're still kind of in contact, you can imagine, with social media. I spoke to him about three weeks ago. I said, do you remember this incident? And he was embarrassed about it, but I said, listen, that's how you know really? children aren't born racist. Yeah, it's just, you know, he, he, he was alluding to that he had heard it kind of at home, but he didn't want to say who from. You know, mm. children are product of their environment. So, yeah, that was kind of the first time that I had to deal with it um, as a child. Um, but yeah, moving forward to an adult, it was it was via social media. Um, both of those occasions, I was playing in the Edinburgh derby. Um, the first time I came off my phone after we'd won a game, and I'd been racially abused on Twitter. Um, I remember replying back to the to the person who sent it, something quite witty, um, but. It was upsetting, it was upsetting. Obviously reading it, I was reading it kind of in my own voice and I couldn't really hear the hatred in it, although there was, I could see what the words were in front of me. Uh, the second time somebody recorded me uh, warming up again in the Edinburgh Derby, racially abusing me and uh, that time was a lot, lot worse. Yeah, that's awful. And it's awful to hear that like, 
you had such a, an experience of it from a young age. Um, yeah. can, I, can I just ask, just it really intrigued because you said that your mum didn't explain what the word meant and I guess you were, I don't know if you're, you felt kind of left to just wonder what had been said and why it was such a such a problem and such but um, and from my own experience my parents were quite similar when things like this would happen growing up there was, you could, you could see their brains working as they tried to toe the line with how much should they say about this experience and the environment that their children are growing up in? Um, of course, like as with any delicate situation in ch with children, you want to treat them with respect and kind of explain to them what is happening or what they've just experienced, but also not being that sure how much they truly understand about its implications and its future consequences either. Um, do you think that having got older, do you think you felt shielded from some of the things that happened growing up? Or did you feel that your environment and your family kind of put it quite front and centre, it couldn't be ignored? No, I was, I was definitely shielded, um, 100%. And I kind of understand that, you know, as, as a parent, you don't want to see your young child maybe exposed to these sorts of things um, mm. at the age because, you know, I, I don't know how my reaction would have been if mama would have explained that to me at a younger age. She might have been worried if I heard it two years later, how do I react to that? You know, again, until I was a little bit older, I just thought it was another swear word. Um, so I was told never to say it. And if I did hear it, I had to report it. But I never knew that, you know, mm -hmm. what it actually meant. And, and yeah, I was right. definitely shielded. You know, my mum never ever spoke about... The first time I heard my mum speak about racism, I ever had a conversation. I was about 14 years of age. Um, and she was saying when she was pregnant with my middle brother, she went to get on the bus with, with my eldest brother. And, um, you know, she was racially abused. She tried to get on and, you know, these, these three men wouldn't let her on the bus. And she was very lucky that my uncle and his friends were walking up um, as this was kind of confrontation was going on. Um, and let's just say my mum managed to get on the bus so you can work out the rest of the story for yourself. But, yeah, <laughs> um, you know, that was, that was kind of the first time that I really heard my mum speak about it. How would you say that racism has impacted your mental health and what advice would you give to young folk or students going through similar situations? Um, you know, the two occasions I just spoke about then, um, the second one which was via Snapchat and obviously the video, that one affected me a lot. You know, it affected me probably more so because you know, my mum called me up in tears about it on both yeah. occasions, but especially the second one. And that, that hurt me, you know, it was that hurt me more than the video or any words anyone can say, you know, for everyone out there was to hear one of your parents cry. And, you know, at this point I'm in my thirties, you know, I'm still my mum's youngest child, but I'm a fully grown man. And she just saying to me, I just want me to come home. But to hear that, you know, the first five seconds of that conversation with her just sobbing down the phone and me not knowing what was wrong, um, was extremely hard to deal with. Uh, in terms of my mental health, I think that affected me more than anything because I knew I was okay, or I thought I was okay anyway. I was more worried about my mum. But yeah, it, it does affect your mental health 100%. Um, but I did say, you know, after that kind of second occasion that I would emotionally detach myself from it um, because I couldn't afford to go kind of into that, that space again, you know, into that deep place again where I was getting up in the morning and at times I was just angry at the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd be out walking my dog and I felt someone would look at me in a certain way and I could react or, you know, if I was out, food shopping affected my football and um, you know at times i'll be on the pitch and i'll just flash back to that i said to myself i can't allow you know for, for this to happen in social media i have to you know emotionally detach myself from it because as strong as these words are as, as what the person said you know i don't know them you know yes they described me in a certain way but i can't let it affect me because as i said it was taken over my life um 
and my football. My, what I would say to any student or, or anyone out there who's kind of dealing with this, um, is to talk about it. You know, the support network I had around me, which was again my mum and my brothers and my teammates also, um, but especially my mum and my brothers. I, I spoke to them about it. I was open and honest about my feelings. Mm -hmm. and I, I wasn't ashamed. You know, I tell everyone on this call now. I cried. You know, I didn't yeah. cry. My mum cried. Um, but am I ashamed of that? No, I'm not. You know, I think you have to talk about these sorts of things. Um, and you find your kind of own way out of it. There's no right or wrong way. You know, now I'm racially abused when I was to speak about racism, you know, to the media or in public, but it doesn't affect me at all because, you know, as I said, I'm just so detached from it and I have to be because in order for me to help other people, I can't afford to go back to the Marvel. You know, I was on those two occasions. So listen, if you're racially abused, speak about it. Um, as I said, it's, it's okay to cry. Um, you know, it's okay to be upset. Um, but yeah, the most important thing is to speak about it and know that this is never be ashamed of your color or your religion or your sexuality or, or anything like that. You know, we are who we are. And if somebody doesn't accept us for that, then you know, the problems with them, not us. Yeah. How is it that you manage to like block out negativity and just detach yourself from it? I know that you're saying that's something you have to do. Um, how do I do it? I had to do it. There was, mm -hmm. there was no other choice. You know, sometimes in life you just have no other choice. And I felt, and listen, it it wasn't easy to do you know it wasn't easy i still see things now and maybe for a split second i'll revert back to you know how someone should react to it but then i say yeah, I, I can't i really can't because mm -hmm. i can help somebody else get in contact with me if i'm mm -hmm. allowed to be emotionally you know deterred by by an idiot and i use that word because that's what they are you know down the other end of like a, a laptop or you know a phone or something like that it's not easy to do and you know i'm not saying everyone can do it or everyone should do it but you know, in the role that I'm in now and how I want to not impact football, impact society, you know, I have to be that person. So for the greater good, if it means me emotionally detach myself from that and it works for everybody else and I help somebody else, because not everyone will have that support network. Sometimes I am their own support. And sometimes yeah. I have players or people in public contact me directly on social media that I don't know. I've had boys from yeah. the English League, boys going and play in the Euros, that earn a lot more money than me that are, you know, famous footballers out there. But, you know, in order for me to help them, I, I have to park, kind of park my problems or whatever to the side and, you know, really mm. help them. I've really felt that it's allowed me to do that, um, you know, with a level head. And I, I get more upset as well when other people are now racially abused rather than myself. Because, as I said, you know, my things were wounds at the start. This is why the analogy I use, they were wounds at the start and then now scars. And when you see a scar in the mirror, you remember oh, what happened maybe for a few seconds and you forget about it. But when you at first, when you're hurt and it is a wound, it's, a, it's painful every time you move. You know what it's like. You know it's, it's absolutely painful. So I had to kind of move myself along so I can help people with their wounds and kind of forget about my scars. Yeah, yeah. I really, really resonate with that. And um, I watched your interview with James uh, Tavernier. Yeah, maybe yeah. I'm saying that right. And I remember, like, I, I'm obsessed with reading like YouTube comments on videos such as this to kind of get a. I feel for the temperature in the comments and I certainly felt there was quite a number of comments that were very much of that oh just ignore it and it will go away and I was like well, okay um, and I I actually very recently was a victim of racial abuse here in Glasgow in the West End I remember and I, I shared with with my friends I posted about it I let people know that oneness still happens and two it's not okay and I think that's that's the thing you I think it's really important you talk about support networks because even though there is a need to, I say 
disattach and compartmentalize a little bit that that's for you to kind of get on with your day get on with your job get on with being who you need to be to your family your friends etc but I think just as important there has to be a space by which you can process or grieve what has just happened there and yeah, yeah from I think from both of those two things that's what turns a wound into a scar and mm -hmm. I often worry that some people aren't given that opportunity especially as children when these kind of things happen and you'll, you'll hear that you hold the outcome of a certain person is now you know they've got into fighting or they've got into to name calling or there's certainly a more hard-edged hostile environment now around that person and I always think to myself what would have happened if they were given the support they actually yeah. needed there if they were actually told look if you need want to cry if you feel the need to that is okay to do here um do you feel that um i guess the sport of football as a whole between your club teammates did they offer like a safe space to do those kind of things or was that a more private experience yeah um you know i definitely felt that i'd have been comfortable if i if i felt the need to, to cry in front of my teammates and i felt fine with it as i said you know they were supportive when i was around them but also when i was at home you know, mm. I was getting messages constantly and, you know, boys checking in and people around the club checking in on me. Um, but as I said, the, the, the thing that brought me to tears was actually hearing my mum. So wherever I would have been at that moment in time, you know, that would have been my emotion. Um, you know, she's kind of the, the pride of my life. So mm. I, I can't hear her, you know, in, in kind of that state. And it upsets me now to think about it, you know, even though it was, it was that time ago, because it's, it's not a nice feeling. You know, it's not a nice thing to hear, um, you know, and especially when it's based on color, the color of your skin. There's nothing I can do about that. You know, I'm proud of who I am and how I look and everything else. Um, so for me, it is what it is. But yeah, it was difficult, definitely difficult. But I definitely think, you know, I would have done it in front of my teammates and they would have been supportive of me as well. That's really, really good. It's really so important to have like a really good support network around you. So that's good to hear. Um, we have over 50 sports clubs here at Strathclyde Sports Union. What advice would you give for university sports teams to make sure that they're more inclusive and to combat racism and maybe just to educate them to to be more inclusive? Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's always a funny question, this one, because I've never felt when it's come to joining a team or anything else that anyone's ever tried to block me because of the colour of my skin. Um, you know, everyone's always been extremely welcoming. Maybe that's because they thought I could add something to the team. It might have been slightly different if I couldn't play footballs, for example, and I wanted to join in. But I just think to be, to be good humans, you know, we all know right from wrong, be welcoming to somebody new. Um, don't get me wrong, all, all football teams, all sports teams kind of have their kind of cliques, but it's important when it is a team environment and new people are coming into it that we open it up for everybody. Um, you know, being the captain here and, you know, at times I captain the hips, that was one thing that was always important. If a new player came into the dressing room, you know, everybody welcomed them. You know, I might be you know, better friends with, say, four or five, or I spend more time with them, but, you know, welcome that new person to our group and let them select, you know, what group they want to be part of. Because, yes, we are all together. I'm talking about when you go to gym or go to lunch or, you know, do extra in training. Yeah. It's always like four or five, you know, small groups, but just be welcoming. You know, there's nothing worse than going into a, a new environment, I imagine, and, and not being accepted. Um, you know, it's very, very difficult. And then if you think you're not being accepted because of the colour of your skin, then, you know, that's, that's even worse. But... I just think all sports teams, uh, you know, we just need to allow for anybody to join in um, and then just be there for each other. Listen, we all know right from wrong. Um, I think it's very, very simple. Just just, just be welcoming. Definitely, yeah. And, and obviously social media is such a bigger thing now. How do you think that's impacted, like, racist comments and how would you respond to that? I know that you're quite 
um, active on social media with that kind of stuff? Yeah, um, social media has been a huge problem for me. Um, during lockdown, we saw a massive rise in kind of racial comments and discriminative messages. Uh, and social media companies allow for this to go on. So what will naturally happen and, you know, almost come along organically, um, people are now going to think, well, I can say it on social media. Do you know what? I'm going to see you playing on a football pitch and say the same things. There's no surprise to me there's been a rise in Scotland where people are now saying it, you know, from the stands when fans are saying certain things because they've been allowed to get away with it on social media and they've not been held accountable. You know, I've spoken to, to well, Facebook, but Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp are owned by the same company. And I have, you know, the same argument with them over and over again. Just get everybody to, you know, offer everybody the opportunity to be verified. You know, I know on certain platforms it's a blue tick if they think you're some sort of celebrity, and I put that in inverted commas. Um, but then, you know, allow for everybody else to say have a green tick, for example, or don't even tick them, but just say if you want to verify your account, you load your passport or some form of ID, and then come to me as one of the people on there or all of us and say, if, do you want people who are not verified to be able to comment or message you? And I would yes. simply say, no, I don't. So nothing changes on your profile. Nothing changes. You don't have to put a picture on there. Nothing changes on anything about what you do on there or how you use it. It just means that you're then held accountable. You know, if people who don't want to verify themselves, and that's fine, you can still press on Marvin Bartley's profile if it's open, but you can't message me, you can't comment on my picture. You know, and that's, that's up for me to choose. And they say, oh, we can go and block people individually. I'm like saying that's normally too late. You know, I'm normally racially abused first, and then I'll go and block them. And guess what? They delete that account and they go and start a new one. You know, when I was recently racially, racially abused, rather, I think seven of the uh, profiles had been made, you know, this month. Yeah. So I'm just saying, listen, these people are making it. They don't follow anyone. They've got no followers. They've got no pictures up. It's racially abused you. Off they pop again. And for me, and if I'm being totally honest, and I'll say it to them when I sit in the meetings, I'll say, you don't want to do anything about this. Because you have to remember it's a numbers game for social media companies. The more people mm. go on their platforms, the more money they can charge for, you know, sponsorship space. And that's all it is. Because it, so if I put something out, oh, I was racially abused on Instagram, and somebody presses on it and takes them through to my Instagram where it's explaining it, that's perfect for them. You know, all publicity is good publicity for them. And as I said, they don't do anything about it. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll keep having these same conversations with them. But social media have got a lot to answer for, a lot to answer for. Yeah, yeah. like social media does so much good, but also it's, it's such a platform for people to hide and just feel like they can say whatever they want, which isn't okay. Yeah, nice. what you said there, it does do a lot of good as well because you can reach out to people and speak to people that you, you know, never normally have the opportunity to do. You know, yeah. 99.9% of people use it correctly, but that, that, that minority who use it that way, you know, ruin it for everybody else. Definitely. There's a, there's a question of responsibility here too. It's the thing with social media companies. I think that's a great idea, but I just find it a bit bewildering that people think, oh, well, if you don't like it, just block them. They don't need to. And like, it should, you shouldn't <laughs> it's have to do that. my job to police people who want to say these kind of things to me like yeah. that's why i think it's such a good idea if you just say look everyone gets verified you can decide if you want people who choose not to sign up so that is still a choice and i think yeah. i think often with social media seem, people seem to very quickly forget that they have choices and make choices but yeah. the anonymity doesn't suddenly absolve them of a choice they make even under the pseudonym they've created yeah. if you want to say that it's okay to do this and then someone calls you and you go oh no no didn't mean it that way i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm like you you typed these words and you hit yeah. enter them. like what yeah. about that is accidental and even if you want to argue in retrospect that the motive wasn't there to do that and like i mean it's, it's, i shouldn't have to legislate for that by blocking people so of course like they need to be doing more yeah 100 percent. 
Um, so as I mentioned, it's Black History Month, um, which is a great campaign, but we are looking to break the mould of these sort of month-long campaigns and make sure that like conversations are had continuously throughout the year, not just during a specific month. How would you suggest that we ensure that these conversations are had and that the messaging, messaging doesn't just stop at the end of October? Yeah, um, you know, I totally agree with kind of that way of, of dealing with it. Um, I think conversation's key, isn't it? You know, I've had people, as I said, you know, message me from, from different fields um, who are in, you know, high-powered jobs. And sometimes it's it's a learning curve for us all because the terminology that was acceptable maybe 10 years ago has it, changed to now. So some people don't know these things without, without speaking about it. And we can't be embarrassed to speak about it. We can't be embarrassed about saying the wrong thing, you know, because if, if I'm having a conversation with you and you use a term that I don't think is correct, and I say, oh, no, you can't say that and explain why, which is fine. It doesn't change the flow of our conversation. It doesn't change how yeah. I feel about you. It's just that we need to just be open and honest. And sometimes I think we kind of step on eggshells thinking, oh, can we speak about this? Is it okay to speak about this? And, and it is, you know, just have the conversations. I think that's how, you know, yes, it's fantastic having Black History Month, but let's just open it all up, you know, across the whole year. If you want to speak about it next month or in three months' time or whenever you want to speak about it, then you should, you should feel that way. And I know some people kind of feel nervous and, you know, going to conversation, I don't know if I can say that or say this, but just ask the question. Literally just ask yeah, the question. There's no harm in asking. Yeah, exactly. There's no harm in that. Never be afraid to think no questions, you know, silly. There is no silly questions, you know. And you know, if you're speaking to somebody who, who will respect you for, for answer, asking the question rather, first and foremost, and then you know you can have a discussion about it. But discussion's key for me on anything, you know, not yeah. just racial stuff, but absolutely anything. Definitely can't like let fear stop these conversations from being had, and um, and just making sure people are speaking. What do you think has changed since like the Black Lives Matter movement um, of twenty twenty? Um, I think there's been some good. Um, one hundred percent. I think you know you kind of see players in football and other sports kind of taking the knee. Mm -hmm. um, and and my whole thing around that, and I've had so many. Uh, discussions and debates with people who try to muddy the water with a sense of political agenda, etc., etc. Let me tell you something, and this without generalising, eighty percent of us footballers aren't clever enough to know about politics. You know, I've got no idea about politics and political movements. I don't. You know, the reason I I kneel is because I want to be treated the same as you know my teammates, regardless of our skin colour, regardless of our religion, regardless of anything else. You know, discrimination on on all levels is unacceptable. Um, so, you know, I, I also said that this was never going to end racism, it was never going to eradicate racism, but it was going to spark conversations. And, you know, I always tell this story. The first time we took the knee, one of my teammates' children saw us doing it, and, and they said, why, why are you doing it? And that, for me, is a light bulb moment. That's perfect. That's exactly what we want. And he said to his, uh, said to his child, oh, because Marvin's treated differently to me. And his child came back straight away and said, oh, is it because Marv fouls, uh, fouls all the time? Is it because he was always keeping people over and getting booked? He doesn't see colour, he doesn't understand that. So he's just like, yeah. oh, it must be because Marvin kicks everybody. He's like, no, no, it's the colour of his skin. And he was like, what? And he said, yeah, because obviously Marv's black and we're white. And he said, okay. So he said, well, what does that mean? And he still, he couldn't grasp the idea, yeah. of, you know. And, and that's learned behaviour. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's all learned. It's all learned. So, yes, you know, taking a knee was kind of the first thing. And I, I think, you know, football and, and other sports have kind of been left, like, hung out to dry. Um, mm -hmm. by the power of the if I'm totally honest, because we needed more help from them, you know, and as, again, they, they let us do that and it sparked a conversation, but what was the next tier? 
you know, and I hate to, talking about a tiered system when we just come out of COVID and everything seemed like a tiered system, we couldn't do anything, but that was the first tier of it. You know, what was the second and third tier? What was a long-term plan? You know, yeah. this is all lip service at this moment in time. Oh, well, you we can take them there. Okay, brilliant. Spice up conversations. It's striking when you see it. You understand the reason they are doing it. But what's next? You know, what's next? And this, these yeah. are the conversations I felt that there was a glass ceiling to what they were allowing us to do. And a lot mm -hmm. of pressure has been put on football, especially in the UK, to deal with societal problems. Yep. You know, people who come into football stadiums and racially abuse others, they're not part of football. I don't see them from Monday to Friday on the training pitch or anywhere around the stadium. They come from mm -hmm. every industry, whether it's, you know, banking or teaching or whatever it might be. You know, they come from these industries. Yeah, so we need to do more. It's society, you know. Yes, football, and obviously, you know, football clubs are massive in their local areas. Um, absolutely huge. You know, we can play a, a massive part in influencing future generations and explaining stuff to them. But we still need help. I just felt we were kind of pushed to the side, right, you don't deal with this, you don't do the need, and then we'll leave you to it. And, and these are the things that, you know, I'm having constant conversations with, you know, kind of the big wigs, let's call them that. But listen, something has to change. Um, it definitely has to change, but I think we're moving. I think unfortunately there's there's been a sentiment that football, I mean, of all the sports sports in general, but especially football in the UK has been, been allowed to become some kind of outlet by which everyone does what they do Monday, Friday, and they come on a Saturday or a Sunday to kind of get whatever was suppressed in the week out of their system. Yeah, Whether it's because they're in large crowds of people, they can shout things without thinking they'll be heard. They can do things that absolutely, you know, a lot of fans do things at games that would get them fired in their jobs. Like you would not see, you would not see this behavior. They wouldn't say it at their place of work. They'll no, say it. They've got their team's kits on, but you wouldn't say it at your place of work. And that's what people say about, oh, they need to be educated. No, they don't. They know right from wrong. They won't say mm -hmm. it at work. So sorry, carry on. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, it's, no, but that's that's the thing. I think they've been left out to dry, and then I, I just I find it personally irking to see that. As you said, the big wigs, the powers that be, seem to act surprised that this still happens without some sort of acknowledgement of the mechanics and societal functions that like perpetuates this. If, of course, if if you create a society in which people have either been made to feel they cannot say things or that they know not to say things, but will not also be punished or reprimanded if they do. I mean, if, if you think of all of the the cases of uh, racial abuse across sport, across football, whether it's here or down south, and then think like how many actual arrests or anything like that are actually made. Of course, people yeah. people know they can count on crowd mentality to say that when they're in a stadium of 30, 40, 50,000 people, that one comment aimed at some player on the pitch probably won't get picked up. And even if yeah. they do, there's always a sort of he said, she said idea to how we charge. Which I yes, we have to protect um innocent until proven guilty, but I do think there is sometimes a natural flaw in that plan sometimes that essentially states, yep, as soon as they can say what they want and then retract or change change the motive or narrative of being behind what was said later because they yeah. don't think they'll be caught. Um yeah, well, yeah. the question. It's difficult to for these people to be prosecuted. I said, you know, somebody recorded me on their phone racially abusing me. You know, their Snapchat name was in their Facebook, their Twitter and their Instagram bios and every single one of them. And yet they still went to court and walked away. Mm. They were told that, you know, it could be somebody else with the same accent as this person. So, 
you know, unless they turn the camera on themselves first and foremost, say, I'm about to do this and then turn it around, <laughs> you, know, you, you really are struggling. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, we've talked about some like difficulties and stuff you've faced in sport, but what would you say is your favourite part of being involved in the sporting community and why do you think young folks should get involved in sport, particularly at university? Yeah, I, again, I think it's just kind of my release, you know, especially I can imagine for students who have a lot of work to be doing and stuff, having a sport to play and being in that team environment, there's nothing better. You know, whether you're winning or losing games, there's, there's nothing better than, you know, speaking to your teammates and learning about kind of their week and everything else. And, you know, you can like socialise and stuff with them. I think team sports are, are absolutely massive. You know, obviously I never went to university, but I would advise anybody who does go, you know, to college or university or anything else to get involved in some sort of team. And they find your niche, whether you're good or you're not, whether you're, you know, doing it because you want to make a professional career out of it later on, or you just want to, you know, go and play. Um, I actually ended up coaching maybe it was one of your rivals, Edinburgh University team. I think it was their third or fourth team. And I really enjoyed <laughs> it. Was some, yeah, there were some people there that were, were brilliant. There were some people there that weren't so good. But it was, a, it was a brilliant training session and we had a laugh and you know, things like that. And you could just see the togetherness that they have. Um, I, I think it's fantastic. I think, you know, everyone should be encouraged to find, you know, whatever your sport might be. Um, just, go, just go and join in with something because, as I said, you know, it definitely, you know, makes the weeks and the months go a lot quicker when you're around those sorts of people. Definitely. Makes university a lot easier. Yeah. Nathan, do you have any more questions? Um, yeah, I guess I guess I'd probably ask just in the back of sport. Like, um, I guess I've got, got a sort of general question of how do you think we can start to combat, I'd say, the discrepancy between the general love and appreciation of black sporting excellence? We, we're, there's plenty of... Um, prominent black athletes and musicians etc but there obviously seems to be some kind of gap between um, the average person's appreciation of those feats or those athletes etc and then when the question is turned to okay what about the sort of civil equity and rights either in the eyes of the law or in um, social rights that seem to go with that I just wonder if you had any thoughts to that or any experience with that no no not really um I suppose the only example, and it's, it's you know, veering away kind of a question, but it's kind of the same. I think you're talking about like kind of a bottleneck. We can get to a certain level and then it kind of stops. In yeah. that, the example I can give you within football is, you know, if you look at, say, coaches within um, the Scottish Football League, so from Premier League to, to League Two, when I took the job as assistant manager here, that was the only, you know, person of colour with any first team setup. You know, when you look at the players that have come up here, and it's even the same down in England, you know, you look at the numbers, the numbers are even worse down there percentage-wise. And yeah. it's crazy. I think somebody said to me, you know, I'm one out of 92 people. And I'm just like, wow. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's it's one of those things that, you know, I, if you don't see it, you won't believe that you can achieve it. That's kind of my, yeah. listen, I, I want to be a coach. I want to be a top manager 100%. But I think, as I say, the greater good, I have, Maybe in this position now, there might be a young Marvin Bartley in Scotland somewhere, or you know somebody who thinks oh, it's only for kind of white males to be going into this industry, or there might be a female yeah. out there, or whatever. Well, if, if I'm doing it, then why can't you? You know, and, and that's what we need to see, and that's what needs to happen. And you know, there might be I might have, I could have gone into media if I wanted to, for example. I could be a, work as a pundit full time, but there's you know there's enough black football pundits out there. And don't get me wrong, I'd probably, you know, keep my hair for a lot longer doing that because it's a lot less stressful than what I'm doing now. But, you know, I, I think I play an important part in having to do that. Um, 
and, and that's what I've always said, you know, I'm ever so grateful to the gaffer because a lot of people said to me, you know, and I said, oh, I want to go and do coaching. Oh, you won't get a job. And I was like, why? And I'm talking about older black players than myself. You won't get a job. Why don't you get a job? Oh, because, you know, they don't employ black guys. And I said, okay. I said, have you got your coaching qualifications? And honestly, 95% of the ones who were saying to me say no. I said, hang on a minute. So your argument is you're not going to get a job, so you're not going to get your qualifications. Let me go and get my qualifications. And if I don't then get a job, it's a different argument. Yeah. The first thing somebody's going to say to these people, have you got your qualifications? And no, you're not going to apply to be a brain surgeon. And that's yeah. the first thing to do it. So, yeah. you know, for me, at times there is this kind of victim mentality. They're yeah, really going to do it. And I'm like, come on. And this is the older generation to me. And it disappointed me massively. And that's why I made sure, you know, I got my qualifications before I needed them. Um, you know, now I'm lucky enough to be, be using them now and I'm still, you know, studying in kind of my football qualifications. But yeah, I think there is, I think there is opportunity. But I think at times, you know, people see themselves as a victim, you know, rather than seeing it as an opportunity. And listen, I'll go for however many jobs and if people keep telling me no, 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 I'll never think it's down to my skin colour. That's the last thing that I want to think. Because if I begin to yeah. think that way, I'm going to go into these kind of interviews with a chip on my shoulder. And that's the last mm-hmm. thing I want. Because, you know, I've been described as having that because... You know, I'll show a bit of aggression on the football pitch. So, yeah, yeah it's um, it's one of those. There needs to be change, but the change has to be us. Why can't I be the change? Why can't you be the change? You know, why can't any of us three be the change or any of the students? You know, that's the yeah, thing, yeah. That's thing about this world. Any of us that's sitting and watching this can be the change. So why not do it? Absolutely. And we've been given so many tools to do such, to make such change now as well. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, I completely agree because, of course, when you think about what we have an offer, whether it's what can be offered in higher education or new career paths that have opened up that didn't previously exist. And it's like, oh, come on, like, you know, a bit of drive, a bit of ambition, like, why why not? Of course, there's some very real challenges and caveats to some of these things, but why should that be the first thing in your mind? Like, exactly. is it, as you said, for all, the, for all the guys you spoke to that didn't have coaching licenses, well, of course, it does seem kind of incredulous to think you'd be given a job without the qualifications to do it. Yeah. And people people want to see the people who are qualified for these jobs get them. As yeah. you said, if you've got the qualification and then we're getting jobs, as you said, it's a, it's a different story. But if you don't have them, I think anyone you say, oh, I didn't, sorry, man, didn't get the job. You'd be like, oh, how come? You'd be like, oh, well, I didn't have the qualifications. Sorry, mate, next time. They're going to ask why did you not get the qualifications you know you need for this? Yeah. Honestly, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, sex and there's almost like a light bulb moment. They're, yeah, but, and I'm like, no, this is the end of the conversation. So if you can come back <laughs> with, with me saying that you don't have the qualifications and you've still got another argument, then clearly you're an argumentative person. I don't have time for it. So, yeah, yeah. you know, those things. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we'll just end on a few more questions from students. Yeah. The first one was, what is your, no, sorry, how was it playing for Hibs in Scotland for the first time? And would you say there's a difference between playing in Scotland and England? Yeah, there, there was definitely a difference. Um, it's a lot more physical up in Scotland. Um, you know, luckily enough, I come up with the mindset of I must look out there and give 100%. I think you see a lot of players come up from England to Scotland and they think oh, I was going to be easy and then they get, you know, found short. It's definitely a lot different. Um, you know, this my time at Hibs was, was a special time. Um, I think we were reasonably successful, um, you know, winning the Scottish Cup and getting promoted from the Championship. Um, I think we equaled the record points total for the Premier League as well whilst being there. So I played with some wonderful people, you know, playing at, playing at Easter Road and kind of hearing Sunshine and Leaf for the first time was was magical. Um, genuinely was, you know, because obviously I played out in England and don't get me wrong in front of some big crowds, but hearing that song was 
you know, a spine tingling um, is a moment that I'll never forget. And I still love the club now, um, although we play them soon and I, I want Livingston to win, obviously, but then, you know, I'm mourn about that after. But yeah, they're playing for was fantastic at a time I really love. Amazing, thanks. And just to finish on a high, what would you say has been your favourite sporting memory or the highlight of your career? Um, yeah, it has to be. It has to be the, the Scottish Cup. Um, you know, for, for what happened in the game, um, for, you know, kind of the singing and stuff after. Um, the party that lasted four days after that uh, <laughs> was, 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 was also fantastic. Um, so, yeah, that for me was, as I said, you know, I could never sit here and, and give it, you know, justify like or justice like how it actually felt um another great moment for me was making my debut you know when i was at bournemouth walking into the changing room and seeing barley on the back of the shirt for the first time you know kind of carrying your family name was was, was yeah. fantastic um, what age were you when you made your debut um i was 20 maybe just yeah. 20. i came into football late um, yeah you know, I, I worked up until then playing non-league and you know working doing various different jobs so i think i was 20 years of age um so yeah it was it was brilliant to kind of see that and, and put the shirt on and all of a sudden i felt like a superhuman yeah um, but yeah i was terrible in that game anyway my first game but that it was an enjoyable men, uh, moment seeing my shirt it's your debut though it's fine <laughs> yeah exactly exactly i don't know what after that <laughs> with that we will wrap things up there just wanted to say a massive thank you to marvin for taking the time to come along and answer questions for us today and also thanks to nathan for helping to host the session Lots of great questions were sent in by students and it was great to see such good engagement on the matter of racism in sport. Thanks for listening today and make sure to subscribe and tune in to future episodes.